You're listening to the Griffin Show, a podcast hosted by the Cambridge University International Entrepreneurs Club. We're the host, Avio, Taha, and Joanna. In each episode, we will be chatting with a successful entrepreneur, founder, and CEO about their story, what they have learned along the way, and market inside of the industry. Hello and welcome to the Griffin Show, a podcast hosted by the Cambridge University International Entrepreneurs Club. I'm Abiel, the president. Today, we're happy and honored to be joined by Russell Beatty. Russell is the director, head of Asia Pacific Future and Options and OTC Clearing at the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. He has over 15 years of experience in being company director in Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and Australia, and had previously held director level positions in Barclay Investment Bank, Deutsche Bank, and HSBC. Hello, Russell. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Let me start off by asking you the first question about leadership. So if you don't mind. So um, having over 15 years of experience in being a company director um, and a responsible officer in Hong Kong, uh, Japan, Singapore, and Australia, like a lot of places, can you describe your leadership style? There's a couple of things I think I want to just bring out here. I think you need to have a slightly different leadership style depending on the scenario that you're working on, okay? I think having one particular playbook or leadership playbook or style, if you like, that you currently have and deploying that time and time again is not the best outcome that you're going to get. And and, and if I can just take a couple of minutes just to, to set that description up for you. So say, for example, you have a team and you're dealing with a crisis management situation, all right? And in the case of a crisis situation, whatever that, whatever that may be, you're required to have, it's a, usually over a short span of time. The outcome that you're trying to drive is extremely specific. It's probably, you know, it's for a day or two days or three days or wherever it is. The team that you have, you need to be incredibly focused on driving those that particular outcome for that particular time. Now, in that particular example, your particular leadership style, frankly, would probably be more dictatorial, all right? This is what we're doing. This is where we're trying to get to. Everyone knows their jobs. Let's go and do it, okay? It's not really open... You know, frankly, it's not really open up to a broader discussion. You know, it's very focused on driving specifically for a particular crisis management process. And in that particular scenario, you tend to find that a lot of the individuals that you have on your team have been trained to deal with that particular crisis before it arrives. All right. Now, I won't go into some boring banking type sort of scenarios around that. But, you know, like a, a great example would be, a non-banking example would be, say, fighting a bushfire, all right? Like you, you're there, there's a fire, you get called out, you all get stuck into it, and your job is to save property, save life, and get the job done and to put the fire out. Now, the other side to it is, say, in a big, large financial institution, you know, banking organisation, which I work, some of the projects or some of the, some of the roles that you have could take multi years to, to complete one, two, three year projects. So clearly your leadership style in that crisis management situation is not gonna work in a, in a normal project type sort of driven process, okay? And in that particular style, in that particular example, you know, I think from a leadership role, what, you're, what you need to do is to be able to, and I, I, I use this term a lot, is putting a stake in the sand, making it very clear that this is where we are headed, okay? Now, in, in, in Asia-Pac in particular, it's a very complex region. We have like nine different regulatory structures. We have nine affiliates. You know, and there's probably another four or five countries which we're not actively participating in that list of derivative markets. You know, so it's a very complex market. So to assume that you as a leader 
knows every single piece of information to get to that role and micromanage the process is like there's no way you can do that okay you know it's language skills it's product knowledge it's everything else but what what a strong leader does in that particular example is clearly define and put a stake in the sand where you say right team in two years time when this project is completed these are the following things we want to complete this is what we need to get done okay now, in that example, your, your involvement is probably, may, it may be weekly updates, it may be bi-monthly updates, it may be quarterly updates, all right? And in that particular example, you need to step back and let your team get on with the job and make sure that you have the right people in the right seat doing the right jobs, okay? And, and so it's very, it's very different, isn't it? Can you see the example? Right? So I think the key that I'm just trying to get to is, it's important to have different gears in your leadership style, all right? Sometimes you need to crank it up and be short-term focused and dictatorial. In other times, you need to be more sort of open and communicative and working through these types sort of solutions. So that, that's the challenge that I have personally had over the years is building that type of multi-structured multi process as far as when I'm dealing dealing you know in, in leadership roles absolutely so um I think beside being an, uh, a leader is very important so being a good leader is absolutely important now uh, from a leader perspective what do you think is the main and the most important attribute of being a successful team there's a couple all right the first one I think which we all don't do very well is listen just the simple act of listening, okay? And allowing people to communicate and allowing people, sometimes it's venting, which is frustrating because you see where they're going. Other times, other times, you know, your ability to listen and concisely work through the wood from the forest, if you like, all right? To work out what is the important factors around it and to, coach and guide people to get the best out of what they can do, all right? You know, as, as I said earlier, in complex regions like Asia-Pac, it's near impossible for you to micromanage a process. So you have to be very dependent on having key staff, key individuals who have the room to develop. And in some cases, you know, to, let's be honest here, that may mean allowing them to make mistakes. Okay. Yep. Sometimes that may be the case. All right. Sometimes you have to step back and let them go down a path. You can advise them, but maybe they have to learn that themselves. All right. And then they come through and, and with leadership in particular, and you know, the challenge is, is that it's an ever evolving process. It's not something that basically, Hey, I've got a playbook for leadership. That's it. I've been doing this job for 26 years, you know, 15, 16 years of that has been in, in Asia Pac. You know, I know everything. That's so not true. All right. And I think particularly with a cultural mix that we have across Asia Pac, one of the key factors is being able to listen and to evolve as you go along to ensure that you get the most optimum outcome from your team. Absolutely. So you mentioned something about culture. So um, I assume as a background like yours, you have uh, worked in many different countries, specifically in Asia Pacific. So uh, do you mind me asking, have you personally um, encountered any culture conflicts, any culture matter? Or if not you, how do you solve the cultural conflict between your colleagues maybe? The short answer is, is that Asia Pac is such a huge area. Like if you're in a running a project or a business meeting in Mumbai, or you're in Tokyo running a business meeting or a project in you know, or Korea or China or Australia, you know, like that's a huge, a huge demographic cultural shift, all right, when, when you go through. So there's been no doubt about it, what's kept me incredibly motivated and over these years is the sheer diversity that I've encountered over that period of time, okay? And, and again, it's, it's been a learning experience, okay? Like, so if I use, for example, Northern Asia, and, and I don't want to put people in pigeonholes, but in general, 
Northern Asia, Korea, Japan tend to be very uh, procedurally driven. And so if I come to them with an idea or a process, I have to come there knowing that I have to spend probably more time and energy at the start of the process in making sure that we're communicating the goals, the outcomes, the, you know, the direction and the process. And then once they're fully on board, you know, they're off and running. In, in India, you know, in Mumbai in particular, or, or Hyderabad when I've been out there as well, they're a little bit more like, hey, I just want to get it done, all right? So it's like, you know, they are very focused around how do we get it done? How do we do it? Let's work through it. And in that particular case, it's a much, it's a little bit easier in the sense that you just put that stake in the sand and say, okay, that's where we need to go. How do we get there, all right? And, you know, it's less at the starting point, but what I tend to find, say, in some of those areas is that you need to make sure that you're much more diligent around the monthly, quarterly updates, all right, and to make sure that everyone's pointed in the same direction, okay? Whereas, say, in, in Korea and Japan, if you invest the time at the beginning, the updates are really pretty, they're off and running, okay? So, culturally, it's, you know, very different to how you be able to process it. Um, in particular, if I can, there's been some great examples, for example, in, um, in client meetings, all right? In not so much in conflict resolution, but you know, in large organizations, when you're trying, you have to deliver, say, a bad message or something. Like, for example, there might have been, a, a great example would be, I had a very senior Japanese um, counterpart at a bank, wanted us to build a project for them. Um, you know, it, the project seemed to make sense from my seat it made sense from a regional seat. But when I went to global, you know, and they compared all the projects around, you know, and prioritization globally, okay, our particular project that I was trying to get done in Japan, you know, didn't meet the top five, so it didn't meet the cutoff, okay? So unfortunately, you know, I didn't get the resource allocation I needed to complete it. So I had to go back to Japan and deliver that message, all right, and say, listen, it's important to us in the region, but globally, look, I'm sorry, you're important, but I just can't get this done for you, okay? Now, I remember distinctly in that example, this particular gentleman was clearly disappointed, completely upset, and, you know, it was a, it was a pretty tough meeting. And if you've ever been in a business meeting in, in, in Japan, your hands are on the desk, both feet are on the ground, everyone's wearing suits, you're sitting upright, it's very formal. It's a very formal meeting, okay, as we go through, and, and, and so they are. And in that particular example, I realized that I wasn't making any progress here. So what I did was, because I felt apologetic for myself, because I was the, you know, the, the senior leader at the time trying to do it, I, I did two deep bows of apology in front of him in this meeting in a very formal sense. And that was a sign of absolute respect to him that I acknowledged the seriousness of the problem. I was personally taking and committing to that problem, all right, the responsibilities to that. And his, his attitude instantly changed, instantly changed, all right? And he, and he, he almost become apologetic to me, saying, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, wow. please, please. Okay. Like that simple cultural act of humility, if you like, was very powerful in that particular example. Now, to get to the point, if I did that at a meeting in Australia, for example, all right, they'd go, they'd probably have a little giggle and say, what, who's this guy? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make sense. But that, that gives you a good example. I think as you spend time in the region, and one of the great things about being in the banking sector in Asia-Pac, as I said, is the cultural diversification. How you conduct yourself in Japan is very different to how you conduct yourself in Singapore and Hong Kong, very different to how you conduct yourself in, in Mumbai, Australia. And you know, mainland China is different again. So. Um, so yeah, look, it's a valid point and it's an evolving process as you, as you progress through your career.
definitely. So um, the experience in, in in Japan that you share is very interesting. So uh, let me ask you. So as a leader in that that manage team in a lot of different places, for example, Singapore, Japan,、uh, India. What do you think is at the most effective form of communication with your teams? I think I think two things. So let's let's just. When I said, and it was important that I put that at the front of the talk, crisis management versus normal project. So let's let's just park crisis management for now, okay? Because that's just something that happens from time to time, and you know, as I said, you've got to shift gears as you go through. So in normal business practice, I think it's incredibly important as 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 a leader, as a as to clearly define where we're headed. Okay, and and I use that terminology a lot about putting a stake in the sand. All right, and and in a lot of meetings, what I, I come up with a couple, a couple of little catchphrases in, in these team meetings, particularly at the beginning of these projects, is, you know, in 2022 when we're sitting around having a couple of drinks before the holidays or Christmas in two years' time, what we're going to be talking about is the success of this project, and these are the following things that we're going to. Be you know justify our success, X Y Z, all right. And I think what I'm trying to say there is is a, is is my style is my way of saying, look, that's where we need to get to. That's what we're going to manage our you know our results are based on, and the, these are the following things that we have to achieve. Now, you know. You'd clearly understand that, particularly as a leader, is that it's not a straight line to get to those goals. Okay, particularly being in a big organisation, you know, there's there's ups and downs and paths around, <laughs> and sometimes you may think I'm going right off on tangent, and then you come back on, and then, but at the, at the end of the day, every time that we have a, a weekly catch up. Monthly catch up, quarterly catch up, whatever it is, through these particular project teams and what we're trying to do and how we're trying to manage, we always go back to the two or three very clear, concise goals that we set ourselves, and that's where we want to get to. All right, that's the point that we want to get to. And I've, you know, this is I'm just about to, as you know you mentioned earlier, I've just started my mandatory. Compliance leave because it's coming up to the end of the year, and over this time, it's about spending a little bit of time myself over this period. Obviously, is to identify what the key core catchphrases are going to be that I'm going to use in the business for twenty, you know, twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, because those catchphrases, those clear, concise action items. That reflect the goals that we're trying to build as a business will be repeated time again, again, and again, and again. And what I found is, as a leader, if you are consistent with your goals, consistent in the message, and you are consistent in the way that you deliver that message, all right, the team, and then let your team do their job. They rally. They feel empowered. All right, and you acknowledge their success, and then you can collectively, towards the end of the project, you know, you all agree what you know, celebrate the success collectively as a team. But being, you know, to your point, being very concise and being very focused on what the outcome is going to be, and keeping a very concise message over that period of time. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your、um, for your information and your advice in terms of leadership. So、um, now, now I want to ask you something about market insight. So, as a leader in the banking industry,、uh, what do you think the pandemic in terms of COVID has affected、um, the the future of the banking industry? So, did did COVID change、um, quite a bit of your perspective towards the future of your industry? The shorter answer is yes. I think. You know, I've been on a lot of、um, panels this year, industry panels and discussions,、um, and a lot of the discussions have been around lessons learned, particularly around the market volatility in first quarter. All right, that market volatility in first quarter, frankly, was generational in nature. All right, as I said, I've you know I've been 
I've been doing futures for 26 years, 27 years now. That was the most intense volatile period in a 25 year period, okay? And what's interesting is that that occurred during that period when that occurred, we had nearly 80% of staff working from home. So the sheer fact that, you know, we were able to handle the industry as a whole, not, not just our organization, but the industry as a whole was able to handle the huge level of volatility, the huge amount of volumes, the huge amount of margin transfers, capital injections and fluctuations that went through with 80% of people working from home. And frankly, largely, there was delays and there was frustrations and as you would in any particular crisis scenario, right? That we went through. But in general, the markets handled it extremely well. So then the next question you have to say to yourself, okay, if, that, if we were able to handle such an amazing crisis situation with 80% working from home, the question that we have to say to ourselves is, you know, what's the rush to get back to the office, <laughs> to, to, exactly. be, to be honest, exactly. all right? What's the, what's the rush? Now, the, the only challenge that I have, again, going back between crisis situation and normal BAU, business as usual, you know, business practices, okay? Clearly we could handle a crisis situation. Everyone's on focus, everyone's on point, everyone's directoral, you know, there's no, no one's disputing it. Everyone knows their jobs, they're trained for this, let's get on with it, okay? So that's fine and we can do that from home. I think the challenge that we have is that we started having huge, you know, 50% of our staff say permanently working from home you tend to lose, and I've noticed this, you tend to lose a significant amount of creative personal interaction. I know it's important, you know, the sheer fact that you and I are having this discussion now via Zoom, and we're, you know, we're all set up now, aren't we, all right? We've all got the lighting, we've all got the screens, we've got the technology, we're all done. We know we can do it, but it's the subtleties in these meetings. Now, let me go back to the, and let me just say this. Let me go back to that example in Japan where I was delivering that message to that senior Japanese banker. Do you think that I would have the same effect or the same outcome by me having that exact same conversation and bowing here on a screen versus actually him physically seeing me in his office showing that commitment? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would argue probably not. Do you know what I mean? So I think, I think, look, I think there's definitely, there's definitely a driving agenda to get people some more flexibility to work from home. I think that's right. Um, I think that sort of makes sense. I think there's going to be certain roles within the industry, maybe not say frontline banking industry, but certainly sort of say vendor support, technology support, you know, software, quant code writers, you know, that sort of thing. They may be far more productive working from home or in an environment they feel comfortable with. And I, I think it's not going to go away, all right? But I doubt very much that we're going to see, you know, 80% of frontline, you know, investment banking staff. I, I think more and more people are keen to get back to the office. But look, uh, to your point, I think there's going to be a compromise of some particular kind, and certainly there's going to be an element. Now, what is that percentage? We'll have to see over the next year once the vaccine comes in and, and people start getting back to normal. But um, yeah, it's definitely changed how we've done. It's definitely changed how we're doing business. It's amazing to know that even 80% um, of colleagues that are staying at home, they can still, uh, the bank can still be business as usual. It's very it's surprising. It's crazy, isn't it? Like really, <laughs> like I, yeah. I've had, I've had, and it's not just our organization. It's like, as I said, I, I deal with closely with nine exchanges and CCPs, you know, so, you know, Hong Kong exchange, Singapore exchange, you know, JPX in Japan, ASX in Australia. And they're all exactly the same. You know, like it's not, it's not a pocket. It's not Hong Kong. It's not Singapore. It's the entire world. All right. Is operating. And I think, 
particularly what I've seen is it, obviously in the Western hemisphere at the moment, you know, with Europe and, and, and the US, in fact, you know, it's probably, frankly, it's probably 95% of the teams working from home and they're still working from home. Okay. And they're still operating from home. Um, I found it, you know, to be honest, I found it very difficult because I remember I was working at home for the first, um, first week or so. And then a, a small crisis situation evolved. And maybe I wasn't set, you know, it was early. This is like talking March, February, March. And I probably wasn't set up as well as I am now in those days. You know, I had my Blackberry and my phones and everything else. And I couldn't, I, I said, I can't do it from here. <laughs> I can't manage this from home. Like I just physically can't. So I, I immediately just packed off and went straight back to the office and put my mask on and, and sat at the office. And it caused a bit of a ruckus with our COO team. They go, what are you doing back? But, you know, at that particular time, maybe I was a little bit old school. I, I needed the screens. I needed the technology. I needed the phones. I needed everything to actually manage it. But then when, once I managed that crisis down and things went back to business as usual, BAU, I found that I then started to invest some time in my own setup at home to be able to handle it. All right. And, now I think we'll find you find that most people have they've invested in technology and laptops and lighting and speakers and all sorts of stuff so that they can get you know they can be far more flexible as far as to be able to offer that. Yeah, but it's very very interesting. It's um like just by looking at that those tall office buildings all around the world, for example in London, Hong Kong, New York, um and and Sydney, you can't imagine you can't simply imagine like a year ago maybe that all these buildings will be completely without any colleagues um, or at least like Crazy. 20 people going in and then people are still doing business as usual even those like big banks uh big corporates it's certainly amazing surprising it might be actually be the future maybe arguably some people may suggest that and uh it might be just um it shift shifted like 50 years earlier that people start to to consider the fact that oh we can actually completely work in from home instead of going to those uh, fancy tall uh, glass buildings all around. You make a very good point. So let me just close out this point, if I may, all right? If I go back 20, 20 years ago, you know, I, I started down on the Sydney Futures Exchange on the trading floor um, in, in 1993, 94, okay? And that wasn't, you know, I'm sure everyone's seen, seen the screens. That was an open outcry system. Now it looked like it looked chaotic, you know. Very special bunch of individuals down there. I I'm, I remember fondly being down there. I, frankly, I wasn't particularly good at it. Okay, the open outcry. All right, it was everything had to be mental. Everything had to be sort of on paper. Everything was very aggressive. You stood up all day. You know what I mean? So frankly, you know, having just come out of a you know very analytical economics degree. <laughs> where I was doing bond pricing formulas and writing everything, you know, that was, it was a complete opposite to what I effectively been trained for, to be honest. Okay. So I, I transitioned to screens in the office pretty quickly. Okay. So I was down on the floor for a few years and did my training and then moved up. But, but the point that we bring up in the industry is that we call it the electrification. So, you know, that trading floor closed down, one in Hong Kong closed down, SGX closed down, Tokyo closed down. We all moved to screens. It's categorically no way in the world we could have handled the volumes that we saw in first quarter this year. With 80% of people working from home, it was the sheer fact that the industry, the client, and you know the FCMs, you know the Futures uh, Clearing Commission merchants, investment banks, everyone's invested in electrification. And the electronic trading process where, you know, either it's fully STP. So when that means straight through processing, there's no manual process, it's very limited. If there is a manual process, we each year we try to improve and we try and, you know, build an automated process. So it's straight through, so we don't have to do it. There's no one writing tickets anymore. There's no one timestamping. You know what I mean? Like, you just got to think, and that's just to your point about 50 years, that was just 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Like that we we're in that situation. All right. And the great situation, give you a good example. In 
19, uh, let me just make sure I get the numbers right here. 1999, 98-99, when the Sydney futures floor closed down, one of the brokers I was working for there at the time had 86 people on their headcount running that business in Sydney. All right, so that was night desk, day desk, floor crack, operations, 86 people. This Today, they have three people. Wow. Doing the same business. Okay. Wow. In fact, they're doing more. All right. So in 26 years that since I've been doing this role, well, you know, so when the floor changed down in the, you know, before 2000, 86 people, they're now down to three. And that's not because they're de-investing. That's not because they don't consider it an important business. It's not because they're sort of winding back. Literally, it's an example of electrification and disruption in the industry, all right? And, and, and you make a very good point because one of the challenges, particularly with your audience, all right, you are the future leaders of the industry, okay? And, and it's this, this type of investment in, in, in you know, your members that basically you've got to look ahead to see where we're going to be in the next, you know, you said 50 years. Frankly, it's far less than that. You know, like in the next 20 years, you know, I'll be passing on to you guys <laughs> and you, you'll be stepping in, all right? So you'll be being interviewed <laughs> instead of myself. And so you have, to, you have to say to yourself, that's a constant evolving process and disruption as we move through this industry. And, it, you know, this year has been a great example of um, that investment, being able to handle those volumes with effectively, you know, as I said, 80% of staff working from home. As you just mentioned, uh, our audience. So our audience is uh, mainly from the Judge Pitts School uh, in Cambridge. So most of them are startup entrepreneurs. Um, they are founders of startup companies, or um, they have they they mm. they they encourage or, or they admire their entrepreneurial thinking. But mm. many people say that uh, large corporates have such a broad hierarchy system, uh, suppressing entrepreneurial thoughts. And but as a leader in a very established large organization. How would you promote entrepreneurship within your organization? Excellent question. All right. And it's a very challenging topic. All right. There's no doubt about it. Um, large, and, and again, the industry has evolved. So pre-financial crisis, uh, you know, 2000, 2005 to say 2008, all right, that particular growth period, in particularly in Asia Pac, all right, for investment banking in the region. It was, in a, you know, when we look back on it, that was the heyday in a sense, not, not because we're out, you know, writing risky assets or anything like that, but it was a process where you had the ability to come up with an idea. And as long as it made, let's, let's be honest, financial sense okay all right and you know you the outcome of the investment was multiples of the actual initial investment so it was a very simple calculation all right you didn't take you didn't take into consideration rightly or wrongly you didn't take into consideration all, all sorts of different social factors or anything else like that you just took in a, a monetary factor so the, the, the run-up to the crisis there was, to 2008 was really around you could get stuff done pretty quickly and drive the needle and move the business and go into new markets and release new products and get involved. And during that period, you could do it relatively quickly, okay? You, you didn't have in those days, you didn't have the same level of fintech technology all right we still didn't have that that terminology we certainly didn't have but there was certainly you know where you came across a process frankly you threw heads at it okay and you could get stuff done as long as you could end up making money at the end of the day so that was the sort of process post the financial crisis what we've seen and rightly so has been a very significant introduction of regulatory reform. Okay. Now that regulatory reform has been all encompassing. 
not just in the States, not in Europe, it's also out here. Now, if you think about it, you know, as I said, we've got nine affiliates, nine countries, nine CCPs that we're dealing with, that they all have their own individual regulators as well, okay? So now, now the banking sector is incredibly regulated. Um, our, our focus in the banking sector is, and this is just on everyone's mantra, is responsible growth, okay? We don't wanna be up 40% one year, down 20%. We don't wanna be up, down, up, down. We want flat CAGR growth, you know, ideally five, 10, 15% CAGR growth, steady growth as we go through. And so when we're looking at projects and plans, it's really about making sure that we maintain sustainable, responsible growth in the markets. Now, to your point, the challenge with that, when if I'm sitting from a pure entrepreneurial seat, okay, I've just finished my master's degree at Cambridge. I'm, you know, I'm bubbling with ideas. I'm trying to drive out. That is a challenging structure to come into, okay? Because, you know, no one goes, hey, if I do this, we're going to get 30% growth. People want this sustainable growth. And so your comment is fairly valid, okay? In the sense that you want to be able to do that, all right? What we do though, is, is other large organizations have been investing in startup companies, fintech investment specifically, and it may sit outside the main uh, banking structure. It doesn't necessarily sit in my part of the world, but certainly there are all, there, there's resources allocated globally to look at specific projects to help drive those types sort of outcomes, all right? And those particular ideas and those particular things are what will then eventually get moved back into the business, all right, to help streamline the various aspects of the business that we want to do. Now, I've, it's interesting you say, I, I had a very close colleague who was on my team for a number of years, huge amount of respect for him. Um, he rolled out the ALGO program for us across Asia PAC, you know, very complex, uh, built the infrastructure, uh, helped us through the regulatory framework, put the whole project in place. When that was done, the challenge of sitting in that seat was very challenging for him because it went from actually, hey, I'm building, developing, bringing this new technology to the seat to, hey, it's now deployed. It's now business as usual. It's now, you know, it, it, it's now moving to a more user management process, okay? And his particular style or his particular DNA, I found it very difficult, difficult to keep him in the firm, all right? Because he was very focused and he was very focused on doing something else. So he, he ended up, you know, with our blessings, we parted away, he, he went off and he left the safe financial structure of a large organization, right? He was a director and you know, everything else. So he was doing well in his career and highly regarded because he delivered these projects. But he, he wanted to go to a more simplistic startup type sort of firm with risky, more risk. You know, like he was willing to take that risk factor to, to, to go and to live his dream and frankly, that dream meant that he spent time in Jakarta, spent time in Malaysia. I think he went to Hanoi. He spent six months project in Hanoi helping someone build a project. Did you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. you know, that entrepreneurial explorer type sort of spirit, you know, is a boom bust type sort of thing. And, and you know, the big banks like we are, are going to struggle to sort of compete with that. Okay, to be honest, okay. But what, what a big bank like ours does support is if you are focused on the broader goals and you want to build something that's sustainable and that will be there for, for you know, we build things to last, okay. We're not fly by the night. We build things to last. If you have that mindset and you have the mindset that you want to sit there in place, you know, working for a large organization, 
can be incredibly um, rewarding, all right, particularly as you build your career over the years. But uh, very valid point, all right, as I, as I used in that example. You mentioned um, how uh, a startup uh, would be much more compatible in terms of the fast pace, in terms of traditional banking industries. Uh, but at the same time, you also say that as a leader in the banking industry, um, you guys do invest a lot in startups, especially in the fintech. So fintech has in, has in recently become one of the most common industry or topic for startups. Do you view that as more like an opportunity or as a threat to the banking industry? And as a leader, what are you going to do about it? What I say is bring it on. You know, like, again, if I just... <laughs> Like, it's great. I mean, change, change, disruptive change is incredibly important. I mean, again, let's go back to my example. Like, I had, you know, all these people down on the Sydney future, Futures floor wearing their colourful jackets, wanting to do that for the rest of their lives. <laughs> okay, you know what I mean? Like, and in fact, if I take a photo, if I may, <laughs> just to digress for a sec, there's, if I take a photo of the Sydney Futures Floor alumni of the couple of hundred people that are physically down there, the reality is probably less than 10% of those people are actively employed in investment banking today. All right. I, you know, I use that example about that, that firm that had 86 people in Sydney. There's now three. So, you know, those people, others have found roles Yes, they've, but, you know, frankly, a lot of people have left the industry, okay, as we've moved forward. So, you know, change is going to come. One of the most important things in my seat, you know, is that I rent my seat, all right? I, I'm only here for a period of time, and my job is to get my book, my team, my business that I have responsible to the best possible place that I can get it so that at some particular time, I can pass it on to somebody else, all right? That, that's what large organizations, banking organizations are. That's the focus on responsible growth, okay? You know, it's not about, well, let me get some short-term gains. It's about what can I do materially to be able to drive this business, you know, ideally generationally, okay? And, you know, like I'm 56 now, so clearly, I'm in a situation that I'm probably in the fourth quartile of my career, not the first, like you guys are. So, you know, I'm very focused about stewardship and making sure that, you know, we're in the best place. Now, what does that mean? Getting back to your question, if that means bringing in new and accepting and embracing new trends, new technologies, new platforms to, for us to do to our job better, Absolutely. Like I said, bring it on because that is what is incredibly important and responsible uh, as, as, as a leader. Okay. It's not the short-term goal. It's that, it's that medium long-term goal. Am I doing the right thing to be in a position to pass my business on to the next person who takes this role and they, they can take it from me. So the challenge, if I may, sorry, but the challenge is, is, how does an entrepreneur, how does a fintech startup get connected with a large organization that's got 250,000 people, all right? Now, that is a challenge, all right? There's no doubt about it. I don't have, in my, at my level, I, you know, like I run my business, but I don't have fintech investment dollars, all right? That's definitely, you know what I mean? That's not my day job, okay? So, this, the point is that you have to do in an organization is you have to get to a stage that you're plugged in somehow uh, with the right infrastructure. And I know a lot of the big investment banks across the region are investing, are looking, and are spending a lot of time uh, trying to look at how they can improve their systems and platforms as they go forward in the next 10 to 15 years. Hey, that's very interesting. Um... I mean, bring it on uh, for you, absolutely. So uh, let me ask you one more question. So you mentioned a lot about client relationship. Um, how do you do different forms of communications and stuff? So as, very, as a very experienced banker and a leader in both buy side and sell side industry, what kind of advice would you give our audience in terms of relationship or client management? I think, I think 
and particularly, I'm going to use Asia Pac again because of the different cultures. All right, like you know, I, I went to I went you know my education's in Australia. All right, so no doubt about that. Most of Australians are linguistically challenged. All right, so we're not bilingual. We don't have like my children are much better at whatever. So particularly in the region, like I'm in Japan, I don't speak Japanese, so I have to take someone in with me. I'm in Korea, I don't speak Korean, I have to take someone in with me. All right. Um, I go to mainland China, I've got to have someone with me as well to be able to help me through that process, okay? Because those Northern Asian countries are still heavy, well, they do speak English, they're heavily dominated by their local language, okay? So it's really important to make sure that you have that client interaction, okay? But what's, there's a common thread, all right? So let's put language aside to start and some of the cultural significance of each of those individual countries put that aside but there's a couple of threads that i find with client management the first thing is you've got to be committed to ensuring that you're looking at the long term if you're trying to print a short-term trade and you know it's a bad trade you won't have a customer in a year's time okay you need to be committed to ensuring that whatever you say, you will do. Now, it doesn't take a PhD to sort of work through this, okay? These are very simplistic things. So you have to be honest, have integrity, be committed, okay? Follow up, all right, with, with, with what comments that you have. And one of the challenge, one of the things that I think that I've worked in my playbook, particularly when I'm in the region, is before COVID, when I was traveling, I used to travel a lot around the region face to face because you know personal interaction with clients was important. This year we haven't been able to do it, so it's all by you know Zoom and, and WebEx. But it's it's the commitment to being there on a regular basis. So I will ensure, for example that I will go to Korea to see our, you know, five, 10 top clients in Korea four times a year. Okay, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, religiously. I never miss a quarter. I go see our five top, five, 10, top 10 clients in Japan every quarter. And, and you do that around the region. And what that helps it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, you know, I have a team to help me with the details. Okay, so I'll go into the meeting, take the meeting, I'll listen to them, I see them on a regular basis, I build a rapport with the senior managers that I'm seeing there once a quarter. And for example, in Japan, my Japanese colleague will take the notes, follow up on the meeting notes, and, and I'll critique that back on a weekly basis. So that's the only way I'm going to be able to do it. So to cover the region, just let's think about that, okay? If you're doing a week in Japan, a week in Korea, all right? You know, a week in India, a week in Australia, a week in Singapore, all right, and you do that once a quarter, you're on the plane a lot. You're traveling a lot, okay? And so what I've done with my team in particular is I've got key specific individuals in each one of those locations that I trust implicitly, okay, in, in the content. And I come in as the face of the business I'll talk through these issues. I'll document these issues. But I am 100% dependent on my team to follow up you know, through the issue resolution, you know, tracking new business and everything else that's going through. So the biggest key point to, to me in the region is being organized and structured, all right? And once I've done that organization, I've done that structure, people understand it and they know that they're being looked after. If I miss a quarter of, I miss two quarters or three quarters or everything else, then clients start to think that they're being deprioritized. All right, and then, and then they're less likely to give you new business. They're less likely to give you more greater opportunities as they come along. And in many cases, many cases, the sheer fact that I've been and, and, and spent time with them in that particular week, new business comes along after it, not because I'm a particular special salesperson, but because I was the last person that was physically there, I was the last one showing commitment, I was the last one who was in their office chasing that down. And, and you know, that requires a, 
a huge amount of travel. Now, in COVID, we've had to sort of rechange that, all right? And I'll, you know, to, to presentations like this, okay? Where we're putting people on, you know, we're seeing people on WebExes and everything else as opposed to physically traveling. But being, being organized and committed to a, to a client focused agenda is incredibly important. So um, the last question, uh, if you could give one piece of advice and a book recommendation, one book to our audience, what would that be? I wanna challenge people to look at where their strengths and weaknesses are, okay? And everyone has different strengths and weaknesses. You know, I'm constantly in a role. I've, I've been looking on what I'm gonna do courses this year as far as what additional courses can I do? And I've just told you I'm in the fourth quarter of my career, right? But I still, still need to get involved and do courses, still need to be motivated as I go through. So what I would, I would challenge you to, I know that the audience here is very focused on master, finishing your master's degree at an outstanding institution and all credit for you, all right? But the journey doesn't stop there, okay? And I would, I would suggest to you to think what you feel is your weakness. Is it public communication? Is it you know, speaking? Is it some sort of weakness and some skill set that you think that you can improve, you can focus on? and be directed and you know spend the time over these you know holiday period to self reflect on that just take a bit of time and take honest opinion of yourself and take some time to self reflect on on what you can do next year outside of the structured academic framework that you're talking about and and that that's what i think is your focus like a, a book is great but i think challenge yourself to identify something in particular and something that is meaningful to yourself and something that you feel that you will be a better person as you go into 2021. Definitely. Thank you very much uh, for the interview. Thank you, Russell, for your insight, for your experience, uh, your, your, your recommendation and advice. Um, yeah, um, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. No problem. So listen, thanks very much. I, you know, it, you guys are working very hard you know, these type of scenarios um, are difficult and take a lot of time and energy to, uh, to develop. Um, and, you know, I appreciate the time and uh, I look forward to, you know, working with you guys in the future. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, thank you very much for listening to The Griffin Show. Thanks, guys. Oh.